Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me as always is Vincent M. Wales. And today, Vin and I will be speaking with Esther Perel about the paradoxes of masculinity. Welcome to the show, Esther. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Pleasure to be there with you. The first question out of the gate is, when you say paradoxes of masculinity, can can you define that for us? Make it a little little more understandable for our listeners and, well, me? <laughs> so, I mean, if I got your curiosity, then I've already accomplished something in the sense that I am inviting you to think about men and women, but in this instance about men, with more complexity. To not go and simplify, often oversimplify, generalize the behaviors of men, and and to understand that there are masculinities, there are many ways for men to define their sense of manhood, for masculinity to express itself, for boys to grow up, and that often that has been lacking in the cultural conversation about masculinity. We have often been much more willing to deliver a breadth of options for women and not that many options for boys or for men. Yes, we have in our society a a tendency to apply certain attributes to men and to women from a very young age. These are boy colors, those are girl colors, and, and that sort of thing. How do we get away from doing that? We have and still do live very much in a binary system, particularly in our views of gender. But within the gender categories, we have often been more willing to see a spread of colors, if you want, when it comes to women than when it comes to men. And I think that we live in a particular moment at this time in many Western societies that is actually, paradoxically, if you want, inviting men to enter into a conversation with women and with each other and to rethink modern masculinity in a way that women have been able to do for the past 50 years when they've examined their relationships, their identity, their sense of agency within their life at home and at work. And we are now, maybe for this time, at a moment where men are going to grasp the same opportunity. If the 20th century is the century where many women were able to make changes, I think the 21st century is going to be the century where the men adapt to the changes that the women have made. And when you say, how do we begin the change? It starts very, very young. Pretty much around the ages of three and four begin the ascending masculinization of boys. The code of manhood begins to enter, where we want our little boys to be able to be stoic and strong and competitive and aggressive and invulnerable and take charge and to play through the pain and not to change, to show their emotions too much. So we start this kind of massive emotional dismantlement and disconnection of men from themselves and from their connections with others, because we see that as the pathway to becoming real men. You know, we've always lived in a world that thought we are born women and we become men. And that creates a sense in which masculinity is in a constant pursuit and defense of manhood. 
You know, when you're a woman, you're being a woman. But in our society, a man is expected to constantly defend and reassert his manhood or face losing it. And this starts from very young on. It's very interesting. There's a lot that I want to say. And the, the first thing that I want to say is I've always found it odd as a man that men are so incredibly you know, masculine and tough, and we're the strongest of the species, and yet if we wear pink, we will be completely undone by a color. So it is both the strongest thing in our society and apparently the most fragile because, you know, colors can defeat us. And I know that a lot of people are starting to understand that, but one of the things that you said early on is that women have more options than men do. And I think that that probably is worthy of some clarification, because when I first heard that, I was like, well, now, wait a minute. You know, men are all the presidents and all the CEOs and control most of the money. It just seems like men have more opportunities. But I know that you're speaking very specifically about our options emotionally. Am, am I correct? Can you kind of define that a little bit for us? Yes, I'm not talking about options of what to do in the world necessarily or what professions to enter. Because all your CEOs and all your people at the top pretty much has to abide by one particular kind of male conduct. It is one code. You know, it doesn't matter if it's in politics or in business. In the end, there are no 10 styles of leadership that are so appreciated or so seen as being the source of the success of these men. When I say that there are, there's a broader range for women, I mean in terms of defining one's identity as a woman. There are, and this is recent, it's not like this was like that throughout history, where the conversation around female identity has allowed women to rethink who they are, what they are, what matters to them, how they want to connect, what ambitions they want to foster, how they want to proliferate on their education. There's many, many areas of life. What's very interesting is that when I talk about the male code, I actually am not saying this as a way of blaming boys or blaming men. I think this is a massive general collusion of our society. You know, we do want men to be vulnerable sometimes or to be more in touch with their feelings, but we don't want them to be too much in touch with their feelings. There is a certain fear, a certain cultural, societal ambivalence towards the fragility of men or boys as well. It's That's the paradox, is that we want it, but we also on some level are a little afraid of it because we need, from as a society, our men to be strong. And so we want them to be soft enough to be able to relate to, to other people's emotional life, but not so much that they will collapse into their own puddle. And that is a conversation that is finally beginning to emerge right now. It's because we are mothers who raise sons, we are teachers, we are therapists, we are nurses, we are many, many people who are often women in those professions dealing with those young boys and their life a paradox. Another word could have been a certain ambivalence, you know, where we, we want different things that may not necessarily go so well together so easily, at least for now. We do have a lot more men today, I think, who are stay-at-home dads than we did, you know, 50 years ago. I'm also reminded of a book that I saw once. I cannot remember the exact title of it, but it was something funny like Porn for Women. And the photos inside were all men vacuuming and making dinner and ironing clothes and things like that. We do get a kind of a mixed message. As you say, you know, when we're young, we're, we're taught all of these hyper-masculine attributes that, that we should aspire to. 
And then eventually we go into the world of women and we're told by them that they want somebody sensitive and understanding. And for a lot of men, that's, that's a total turnaround that they can't quite grasp. Yes, I would say that there is a, a confusion at this moment about, you know, the very things that we try to put in our boys in order to turn them into men, turn them later into the kind of people that many of their female partners are complaining about. And I think that we are in a wonderful, actually, rich turning point. We don't really know where it's going to go, but a lot of these gender notions are being shaken up. And when you dismantle a social system for a while, it is quite chaotic. When I look at major aspects of men's life, you know, medical, health, social isolation, suicide rates, failing grades, incarceration, loneliness, you know, after we hear so much about how great the life of men is, I just think, you know, it's not so black and white. There is a lot of things that men are doing that are still really from the top down. But there is so many other experiences in the lives of men that are quite dismal, actually, you know. And men don't speak about their needs because they're basically expected to be needless. And it is not socially acceptable for them to be... Uh, to come with their, their loneliness. So it's a very interesting thing in which there is a, a, a kind of a collective ambivalence. You know, we are more willing sometimes to be compassionate to those feelings when they are expressed by women than when they are expressed by men. We want it and we don't want it. It's, it's, the, it's this soup that we are currently in, I would say, you know. Um, and I would add that this opportunity for men to rethink masculinity is actually in the advantage of everybody because the lives of women will not change until the lives of men changes too. And men get the opportunities to define their identity in broader ways. That is for the good of everybody. I think one of the things that's interesting about you know the whole patriarchy and how it impacts men is that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 25 years old, and as a result of that, I lost my job. And one of the first things, if not the first thing, that happened to me when I lost my job is I thought, oh my God, how am I going to tell my father? My father impressed upon me, he was a he is a, a blue-collar guy, he's a retired truck driver, so he's kind of a stereotypical man's man as far as our society is concerned. I mean, he even had a, a manly job, and I was terrified to tell him that I lost my job because he impressed upon me that men have jobs. That's how we take care of ourselves and our families. And this this was terrifying to me, uh, more terrifying than having, you know, bipolar disorder and being suicidal and being in a psychiatric hospital and all of the things that came with it. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is, of course, when I told my father this, he was like, what the hell is wrong with you? Why, why do you think that your worth is your job? You're a you're a person and a human. And there was this just this moment where he's like, look, I, I told you to get a job if you were well enough to work because having a job is important. I didn't tell you that your job was more important than you. But this did not come across to me because of, well, just because. And here we are. You know, my father and I as adults, and we're trying to re-examine this for the first time. And it was exceptionally confusing to both of us. And I don't think that it ever did get resolved. <laughs> it's, it's very moving to listen to you because in a way, you know, you heard your father with a megaphone. You heard your father and beyond your father, you heard the cultural discourse. 
you know, we are women and we do manhood. And you are defined by your performance and by your competence and more than anything else. And every gender gets its social pressure. It's not like there is a winner here. You know, women need to prove themselves in other ways than men. But everybody has a pressure system by which we we demand socialization and gender conformity, basically. A question that I ask in all of the workshops that I do with men is, have you ever felt less of a man in the presence of another man? And the answers often come back with not rich enough, not tall enough, not smart enough, not successful enough, not accomplished enough. I mean, it's just a litany of comparatives towards what is perceived as the heroic, the powerful, the real, etc. when it comes to manhood. So you go to your dad, and your dad, beautifully, is way more compassionate and way more able to see you in context. He sees his son struggling with mental illness, and he says, yeah, if he can work, it would be great, but this comes first. And he puts you in context, which is what gender categories rarely do. They don't put our behavior and our needs and our longings and our expectations in context. They essentialize them. They kind of go black and white on them. And they say, manhood is, you must work or you're lesser than. And then you have nothing to show for, and then you better go and hide. And, you know, there are very few women who have ever hung themselves because they lost their jobs. You know, the word loser does not exist in the feminine and neither does the word emasculated. So hold that question, Vin. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psych central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psych central. Welcome back to the Psych Central Show. We're talking about the paradoxes of masculinity with Esther Perel. I suppose the real question that I have is, how do we accelerate this process of getting away from this stereotypical masculinity? What can we do? I think I would put three things here. You know, one is we train our sons to wield their words and to navigate their emotions as well as they hurl a football or strike a hockey puck instead of leaving them powerless when it comes to creating authentic emotional connections, number one. Number two, I think as attempting as it may be in this particular moment to ask men to shut up and listen for once, I would say that this is perhaps the first time that we can have an open discussion and that women need to listen to, everybody needs to listen to each other. And when it comes to feelings, often these are men's first words. And then the third one would be to create a space for men to be able to be vulnerable and connected while also be powerful at the same time. It's both and. It's not an either or. Can we shift from a paradigm of feelinglessness to a definition of passion at the same time as also powerless? And more than the relationship between men and women, I would say the fundamental changes is also in the relationship between men to men or boy to boy. You know, it wasn't always that we spoke about the loneliness of men and the social isolation of men. In the beginning of the century, men were surrounded by other men, you know. But once they entered and we created new couple relationships and once, you know, the best friend is the partner, 
and no longer the other men and the other friends that we have collected over the course of our life, we literally have a group of men more and more and more talking about their sense of isolation. So these three points for me. I'm always fascinated by some of the stereotypes that come up in unexpected ways. Uh, when my wife and I first got married, she made more money than I did. And, and even now we, we go back and forth. But for many years, she outpaced me by a lot. And then my sister got a promotion and she started making more money than her husband. And her husband was very upset by this. And I was a little bit surprised by this. He's an excellent father that changes diapers, that they work off shifts so that he can, I mean, he doesn't really do a lot of stereotypical male thing. So I was, I was surprised that this happened. Now I handled it with a joke because he said, I'm not sure if I like my wife making more money than me. And I said, Oh, you get used to it. You get used to it real quick. And, and we did laugh, but, but I kind of understood what he was saying. I never voiced it to another person, but I did feel a little bit less than I, I kept it to myself because I felt bad about it, but I'm not going to lie. The first time I started making more money than my wife, I felt better. I consider myself to be a very progressive individual. I'm not threatened by my wife working. I wouldn't be threatened if she didn't want to take my last name. None of these things bother me. But yet, deep down inside, I still like the idea that I'm beating her. Is that because of uh, the male paradox? Or is that just because I'm ultra competitive? And how would, how would you even begin to suss that out in humanity? But they go together. They go together. Competition and competitiveness is one of the primary elements that are part of the male paradox. So it's not a this or that. You know, you could go in two directions. You could say, you know, performance is key to masculinity. And the need to protect your family, the need to feel that you are the provider, is also key. And till now, regardless of how progressive you may be, and I liked you honestly very much because I could say the same thing on the side of the women, which we can come to. You know, this is, these are mutual conversations. Is to know that um, your your friend or your you you know doing childcare or doing house care or being the one who goes to visit the mother who is in the nursing home, etc., etc., is not going to be held as the proof of how masculine you are. Unfortunately, people often change before the discourses. People change before the cultural conversation catches up with them. Fatherhood is being seen as one of the great revolutions of modern masculinity. But it's not like people are saying, you know, he's such a great dad and this is where he gets his real recognition, you know. Couples who actually are organizing less on gender and more around competence. Sometimes she's actually better at making the money and he's way better at running a household and way more of an empathic creature in the house and et cetera, et cetera. And they choose to go by who does what best or at this point, what makes sense for whom rather than these are the entrenched roles that everybody has been steeped in and this is what is expected. And all you do is perform the role and the expectations around that gender role. But inside... Women have ambivalence when they out-earn their men, and men have ambivalence when they earn less than their female partners. That has not fully gone away, and I think it is more honest to actually deal with that ambivalence, like you just did. What is it? And it's not the same for every man. What is it for you that was really, you know, did you feel lesser 
Did you feel like you were not going to be as respected? Did you feel that she had the power to leave you and to abandon you because she didn't depend on you the way that you had learned that the woman should be? Did you feel like you were not able to keep her attention because you were not as powerful or as, as accomplished? What is the threat? And I think if we don't assume it just as a generality, but we ask each man and each woman who is experiencing social change in their home, what is it for you? You know, does it make him less masculine when you out earn him? Do you feel less attracted to him sexually when he, do you feel that he's softer or weaker? Is there a power dynamic that is being played out that you rationally think is stupid, but somewhere thousands of years are living inside of you that are not making this so easy to make it go away. And now the conversation becomes really interesting because often the partners have never really dared saying this to each other because it is not PC. It's not accepted to actually say that because you should be proud of her and because you are a progressive dude. But it is not so simple. It certainly is not so simple. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate your candor in that answer. So when we're talking about the different roles that we have expectations for, let's look at probably the most important role that most people ever have, which is to be a parent. Are women actually better at being parents? Are they better at doing that job than men are? Is that something that actually still applies? I have never thought like this. You know, I just saw I Weigh With documentary Human Flow on Refugees. And in the, in the movie, there's a scene where one of the fathers arrived in Macedonia on the Greek border, and he just lost seven members of his family. And he was able to save six others, mind you. And he bawls, he, he, he pours his heart and his, and his soul out saying, how can I continue to live? I wasn't able to protect them. They died on the raft. I wasn't able to, you know, and I just could not for a moment listen to that plight of a father and think that mothers are better parents than fathers. But in traditional societies, the roles were divided. You know, that certain aspects of parenthood were given to the mother and are given to the mother and certain aspects are given to fathers. And they are rather complementary. In our more egalitarian Western societies, we have interchanged the roles and we want mothers and fathers to be able to both switch back and forth with each other in terms of parenthood. I think that all couples have complementarity. When I work with same-sex couples, I see it so clearly. There is complementarity of roles, of temperament, of rhythm, of patience, of attention, of competence. And in same-sex couples, they're just seen as differences in character. This one is better at that, and this one notices all those things that the other one never sees. In straight couples, we end up gender making these differences gender specific and maybe somewhat they are. And it is a combination of culture and nurture back and forth, you know, but I don't know that I would say inherently, you know, when you see families post divorce or post separation, you begin to see that all kinds of characteristics and skills and things and responsibilities that the other parent used to have now become part of the vocabulary of the one of each one. So you can see that roles are contextual. They are not they are not always so inherent. You know, he never paid attention to the socks and the clothes and the size of the shoes that were on the foot of the kids. But you know what? When he's not around, he notices it. 
it just forced him to do it. And she maybe never really made sure that he was registered for the stream and the sport. I mean, I'm being so generalizing and stereotypic now, but the notion is, in a context, two parents create a certain order in which one is going to do this and the other one is going to do that. Change the context, and then you'll be able to see what is inherent to the gender and what is inherent to the situation. You've really explained it quite well. It's fascinating to me. I I do not like to do yard work. I do not like to be outside. And when I first started out in the world, I didn't really have a lot of money. So I mowed my own lawn and mulched my own flower beds. But as, as I've gotten older, I've made more money and now I hire it. But nobody thinks that I have lost the ability to mow the lawn or that I'm incapable of mowing the lawn or that my my gender or size or age or anything. They just they think it's just something that I have chosen. But yet when it comes to parenthood, they, they really feel strongly that your genitals determine whether or not you're good at certain parenting tasks. And I think that what you're saying is we've all just sort of followed along with what people in the past said without really giving it a lot of thought, because I know plenty of fathers who are wonderful fathers and can do all of the things a mother can do, and of course, vice versa. And I think this is hurting fathers who want to be stay-at-home dads because they think that maybe they're shortchanging their children. I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, I think, you know, fatherhood for a long time was particularly defined around materiality. You were a material provider. You were the protector. You were the one who gave the name. She gave the child. The man gave the name. She created. He gave the form. That was kind of the old dualistic model. And as women entered the workforce, which is the most important change for modern family, you know, that comes with contraception, of course, couldn't have happened without it. It freed up men to actually not have a role for which they never even asked themselves the question. You know, we just said he never amounted to much. He never made much of himself. He never could hold a job. He, it just was this constant disparaging language about any man for whom the professional life did not become the, the success of their life, you know. Um, nobody would, unless he was a big chef, the fact that he could cook every meal in the evening for the whole family or that he was the caretaker of the disabled siblings or all kinds of other things that men do. And so once fathers were recruited in an emotional role, because the women could now also take on the material responsibilities, I think a whole vista has opened up. But what's interesting is that the behavioral change often goes faster than the internal adapting to the change. And that's what you were saying to me before when you talked about the, the discrepancy in income. It's like you can see people do it, but inside they, they have to constantly convince themselves that this is okay, that this is really good, that this is cute, that this is progressive, that this is an, a, a freedom, a new possibilities for both genders in ways that never existed before. But he has to convince themselves because the cultural conversation isn't yet convincing enough. Thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on the show. And uh, Vin, do you have any final questions? No, I don't. Um, I mean, we could probably talk on this for oh, another three hours, but we... It's a fascinating conversation. It's very interesting you're asking me all these questions because five years ago, I, people were asking me, what's the next subject for you? And I said, men. And people said, nobody's interested. <laughs> and I said, how can you say that? You know, if a man speaks from that other place, most of the time, it's not like he's telling it to you for the first time. He's actually never said it out loud even to himself. 
And when he speaks like that, the other men are by sh- definitely interested because they've never heard anybody else say that which they're feeling too. And women, of course, are interested because it's the conversation they are often so eager to have. And so now, in light of the changes of the last year, the subject is on everybody's on everybody's lips. And so, you know, I have a this training program called Sessions for coaches and therapists and, and educators. And our conference this year is called The Masculinity Paradox. And I, I can't even tell you the level of response that we are receiving. It's like people are waiting for a new conversation about masculinity. And I hope to be part of the, generati- the generation of the people who lead that conversation. I hope you are too. We completely agree. Esther, <sighs> thank you for being on the show. We really, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you to both of you. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you everyone for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psych central. Everyone, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psych Central is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.